0: Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. I like that DC gets up here with his little Irish accent, says a few cruel things about me, and then just wanders off with an applause, so (laughs) noted. And by the way, he did dress up for the volunteer Christmas party. He just dressed up as Eminem from 8 Miles. so whatever, but it's cool. So I get the last word. (laughs) Maybe. This morning, we're going to continue in our series titled The Ultimate Gift Giver, where we're looking at ultimately God, who is the greatest gift giver, who gives the greatest gift. And so uh, the greatest gift that God gives is his son and the gospel, which is the good news. And so when we say the gospel, we are not talking about what Christians do. We are talking about what Christ has done. That's distinctly different. And so we're talking about the good news of the gospel. We're looking at different gifts that God gives. Last week, we looked at this, that ultimately God gives the gift of family and specifically a family identity. What, what, what God does is he sends his son to come and redeem us, purchase us, rescue us. And then he gift wraps us and gives us back to the father. So he makes us perfect in the sight of God and reconciles us back to the father. This week, we're gonna look at the gift of healing. I feel like I could do a five, six, seven, eight part series on the gift of healing. So we're gonna to try to tackle that in one this morning. But the gospel has layers. As one theologian I like, Tim Keller says, Pastor theologian Tim Keller, the, the gospel's like a diamond, it's multifaceted. So you can look at it from all, all different angles. We can summarize it as the good news the good news that God saves and redeems rebels rescues them and gives them a new identity. Well, we start to see the gospel starts to shape all of life because it's multifaceted. One of the things that's commonly not talked about is the gospel has the power to bring about ultimate healing and the healing that we need, which is what we're going to look at this morning. So if you would open with me to your Bibles to Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, it's in the Old Testament. And that's where we're going to be at this morning. Let's pray. First, we thank you that you are the greatest gift giver and the father you've displayed the magnitude of your love by giving what's most precious to you, your son. This Christmas season, we celebrate the fact that you give all good things and that you've ultimately displayed that you give the greatest thing. You give your son who's given us the good news. We don't have to sit here condemned this morning, wallowing in our guilt and shame because Jesus, you've purchased for us a new life. You've atoned for our guilt You've paid the price that we deserve to pay. You've sat in the spot that we deserve to be at. And now there is no condemnation for those that are in you, Jesus. And so we praise you for that. I pray this morning as the gift of the gospel, the gift of what you've done, the gift of what you purchased, embeds in the depths of our hearts and lives that it would bring healing, Father. That it would heal our relationship with you as it does ultimately, but it would also heal our relationships that we have with one another. We thank you for being so good. We thank you that we're not left to speculate what truth is in this world that is constantly trying to figure out what truth is. You've given us your word. Your word is truth. Sanctify us in your word, your truth this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Isaiah 53. I'm gonna read more than we're gonna preach on this morning, but let's start with verse two. For he grew up, talking about Jesus, for he grew up before him like a young plant, And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds, with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This morning, we're going to look at the gift of healing. The problem is, is when you jump into a passage like this, a lot is going on here. You have this language of iniquity being placed on him. You have a man who's acquainted with sorrow and griefs. You have a man who's being afflicted on our behalf. You have so much going on. What you have is a picture of the cross. What you have is a picture of need, and you have humanity's need for Jesus Christ. The problem is, is when you jump in here and see this, and we know this is talking about Christ. In fact, in 1 Peter 2.24, Peter's actually talking about the same passage, showing that Christ is the fulfillment of this passage. But when you have something like this, what you have is so much going on and you see Christ up there on the cross. And what you see him actually doing is, is this by his wounds, you and I are healed. The problem is that doesn't mean much if you don't need to be healed of anything. When you jump in here and see all that Christ was doing, all the pain he was going through on the cross that he was, he was despised that, that literally it says that men turned their faces away from him. They didn't even want to look at him. They were so grossed out by the act, what he was doing, because there's nothing more gross and more shameful than to be crucified on the cross. But when you look at that, look at all that Christ endured and go, man, he did this, why? And it says here that by his wounds, another translation is by his stripes, you're healed, you have to ask, does that mean much to you if you don't know that you need a healer? And so this morning, we're gonna look at this. Freedom comes when we kneel, heal, and then get real, okay? So freedom comes, as we look at the ultimate gift giver and the gift of healing, freedom comes when we kneel, heal, and get real. Because first we need to know that we actually need help and we need to kneel, which kneeling actually is a posture of surrender. It's it's saying that I can't do this, I need help, so I'm coming to surrender to say, I need this. Then we look at his healing and see the healing he provides, but then it enables us and frees us to get real with where we're at and what's going on in our lives. I don't stand up here as a man who has everything together. So as I preach on healing, I'm a mess in progress. That's what I would say. I'm a work in progress. I'm I'm by God's grace set apart and made holy through what Christ has done. And now I'm continuing being renewed and redeemed into that identity that he's given me by his grace. And so know that this morning as we jump in. But we need to understand first that we have this need before we see what Christ does, the healing he provides, and really have much to say about it, especially a thank you. Thank you. So where do we look? If we go back to the very beginning of our Bibles, what we actually see is we see God creating. And we see this process of God creating things that are good, and what he's creating is good. What we also see shortly after God creates is we see the fall. In science, there's a term called the law of entropy, okay? The law of entropy. And so what it's actually referring to is this is that the law of entropy is, is based off the second law of thermodynamics? But what it's saying is this. Everything in life is moving towards decay or decrease, okay? So the law of entropy is saying that this. The things in life are moving towards destruction, disorder, chaos, and decay. What we have as Christians, when, when, when we look at the world and go, what's wrong with the world? Why is creation doing this? Why is creation groaning? Why are things moving towards decay? We don't have to look to science to find an answer. In fact, we don't base our, our, our theology upon science. We base our science upon our theology and upon our Bible. So what we get to do is we get to look and go, God created everything, it was good. And then all of a sudden there was this fall. And what happened with the fall is sin entered the picture and sin impacted the creation. It says, uh, uh, as, as Paul says, that the creation at whole and at large is groaning. So all of creation is moving toward this decay. Because the curse of the fall, because sin entered the picture. And so that's what happens is, is, is this sin enters and then creation moves this way. But what also happens is this, we are also impacted and infected with this sin. Okay. If you want to be a relevant, cool church, never talk about sin and, and, and never talk about our fact that we are helpless and cannot help ourselves from our greatest problem what we have is a disease that is far more dangerous that lives inside of us than than any form of cancer because it is terminal for eternity. And so where something can separate us from God on this side of eternity, sin has the ability to forever disconnect us from God for eternity. So it has to be dealt with. And then when we say, well, I, I don't know if I'm a sinner. Let's just do a case study test for me real quick, okay? Do this, just answer three questions. How many times this week have you loved something or someone more than God? Yourself, wanting something, whatever it is. How many times this week do you think that you've loved something more than God? That's the first one. The second one. How many times this week have you loved your neighbor as much as you love yourself? I was even thinking about, like, if you're you're exposed to someone that has, like, COVID in this season, like, is your first thought, like, oh my goodness, I hope they're okay, or oh my goodness, I hope I don't get that. I know where my first thought is. Okay, third one. How many times this week have you grumbled or complained? Paul says in Philippians 2.14. Do everything, not some things, do everything without grumbling or complaining. So just, just three questions. It's a summary of the law. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your, love your neighbors, yourself, and then throw an extra one in about complaining, right? Because we live in the Pacific Northwest and no one ever complains about the weather, Right? So, how are we doing? Case study. Have we loved things more than God? Have we loved our neighbor as ourselves, And have we complained about things? If so, who pays for this? When others sin, we go, oh yeah, like we want the hammer to come down. The, the question becomes, when we sin and sin against a holy, righteous, good God, who, who pays for it? Who pays for it on our behalf? Who pays for the things that we have done? We all have an acute sense of justice. We really do. And one one way to make that clear is like to mess with people's movies that they really love. Okay? So for instance, let me give a different ending to The Lion King and you guys tell me how much you like it. Okay? I'm I'm guessing everyone has seen The Lion King. Okay? Or is at least familiar with it. But just let me go over this. Okay. So uh, Scar takes over Pride Rock. Okay? Simba tries to come back. He's not strong enough. Scar just whoops his tail. Okay, then Scar continues to have Pride Rock. He continues to uh, mistreat all the other lionesses, and then uh, he has babies, uh, and then he eats his babies because they don't want to become kings. And then I know it's dark. Okay, uh, and then he just continues to uh, uh, own, rule Pride Rock, and everyone has to bring him meat and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And the movie ends. All right, done. You go that. Dicks me off, like, like something needs to happen, a price needs to be paid. What about another, let's, let's go with the notebook, okay? No, don't mess with the notebook. In this one, Ryan Gosling's not as charming as you think, okay, this is my alternate ending. They don't die cuddling in the arms of one another, instead, he has multiple affairs. He poisons his wife because he's tired of going in taking care of her because she has dementia and he just wants to get her off the face of the earth. And then he takes all of her money and he lives off this as a millionaire forever. Movie ends, done. Either one of the alternate endings, you go, I hate that. Because you watch stuff like this and go, uh-uh, that, uh, that, that disturbs me, it's unsettling because we have an acute sense of justice. Here's the problem. We oftentimes think of justice as someone out there who did this Needs to pay for that, but we don't see it as something in us that also needs to be paid for when we violate and sin against the holy and righteous and good God. It's really easy to pick up stones or throw at someone else, but when we do something, we're like, ah, I don't know. And so when we, when, when we as Christians look at what's wrong with the world, we have to say something is wrong with the world. Creation's groaning, humanity is, is arguing and fighting, and, and our relationships are broken. We have an answer. Why, is, why are things moving or why is entropy look like this? Why do things look like this? Because of sin. We don't have to have science to go, man, we got to like figure all this out. We can look at our Bible to Genesis 3 and go, sin entered the world and then chaos came in after it. The biggest breakdown that was impacted by the fall was our relationship with God where we experience our greatest healing, but also our relationships with others. Humans at our core were created by a relational God to be in relationships with one another. But our sin has devastated that. So when, when, when we get to Isaiah 53, we first have to see, how did we get here? Do we actually have a problem? And what do we need to do? Now, let's go back to Isaiah 53. That's our origin. That's where things went wrong that's why the world is moving towards decay. And also that's why humanity moves that direction too. Think about this. The sin that lives in you continues to grow in you. In fact, one of the scariest things that I've heard Tim Keller say is a picture of hell is actually you growing and living into your selfishness for eternity. It's not all of a sudden your, your sin stops. It's that you step into your, your, the, the eternal existence separated from God to live eternally to everything that you just want that sounds awful. So when we get here, we we go, okay, sin, sin has led us here. Sin has led Jesus to the cross. There's a reason why he's there. There's a reason why there's this like horrific picture painted of crucifixion. Now Isaiah 53 verse two, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, I don't believe our culture done a really good job displaying a picture of what Jesus Christ looks like. E- even the pictures we have of the cross, like, like, like we want to make it prettier than what it is. If you go back and read before this in chapter 52, it says that Jesus was marred beyond recognition. In other words, he was beaten so bad, you cannot even recognize he was barely human. But also when we have verse two here, it's like we have, you, you've seen the paintings of Jesus. He looks like a Dutch Fabio. It's like, I don't like, If you look at what the text actually says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Those pictures are actually very pretty. But according to the text, I don't know if we're actually developing something that is theologically accurate. Look at verse three. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Look at the other language here. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. If you actually jump down to verse seven, look at this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he uh, uh, opened not his mouth like a lamb uh, uh, that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep... That that is before it shears. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Look here. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? What you see is this language of atonement. You see this language of substitution. You see this language of all this sin and guilt being laid upon someone the first thing that we need to realize is that we need to kneel to the fact that we are utterly incapable of saving and redeeming and helping ourselves. We need Christ to heal us. We need what is going on here in this text. We need a bloody cross. We need a bloody savior pouring out his blood to redeem us. Our our world was kind of moving in the right direction with self-help, kind of. Let me explain. It was at least stating that we need help. Because if you read through the Psalms and read David's stuff, he is actually crying out in many places for help. And he's saying, I can't help myself. Like, like I need help. The essence of the gospel at first and foremost is what makes good news, good news is that there's bad news. The bad news is, is listen, you can't help yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't heal yourself. There's a, a disease that is growing in you that you can't grit and bear. That You can't muster. You can't lace up your bootstraps. You can't do anything like that to get rid of. You can't help yourself. In fact, we've changed self-help to a different name because we don't like it. It's no longer called self-help. It's called self-improvement. Because what our world thinks is if we make a couple slight twists and subtle changes, we just need to improve pretty good people to become awesome. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible lays it out for us that, 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 that we are helpless. In fact, the Bible lays it out for us that we're sick. And it's not language that we typically like. Now we do have some language for it, language that I think our generation now has that that, that maybe the generations before us didn't have. And one of those things is shame because one of the results of sin is shame, but it's still rooted in sin. It's still rooted in something we need healing from. Ed Welch says it like this, shame is is the deep sense you're uh, unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. Or to strengthen the language, you are disgraced because you acted less than human. You were treated as if you were less than human or you were associated with something less than human. And there are witnesses. You feel like an outcast. You don't belong. You feel naked. While everyone else is walking around with their clothes on, you feel exposed and vulnerable. You are seen in what others see as not pretty. You feel unclean. Something is wrong with you. You are dirty. Even worse, you are contaminated. There's a difference between being a bit muddy and harboring a deadly, contagious virus. I'm thankful for the language like this. Language of shame that is rooted in sin that shows that there's something wrong with us in here that needs healing. Again, how's our world responding? Self-help, now self-improvement. How much is spent on this? Here, self-help audiobooks, 769 million. Self-improvement books, 800 million. Self-improvement apps, 27 million. Personal coaching services, one billion in the US alone. Motivational speakers, one billion. Millennials are driving the growth of the self improvement industry. Says one study 94% of millennials reported making personal improvement commitments and said they'd be willing to spend nearly $300 a month on self improvement. There's something wrong with us, with our culture, with our society. We're at least willing to recognize that. We're recognized to see the amount of money that people are spending on self-help. But are we willing to kneel to the fact that we have exhausted these efforts? And can we turn to the word of God that says, here's where the problem is. Are you willing to kneel? One day, the word says, everyone's going to kneel. The problem is, is at that time, it's going to be too late. Are you willing to kneel now that your greatest problem that you need healing in is not something you can heal yourself? And the Bible says that our sickness is a result of sin or sin and sickness are synonymous. What do I mean by this? When we think of healing, oftentimes we think of physical healing. When the Bible talks about healing, and when David cries out for healing, he's actually talking about his sin that's made him sick. I think we have some verses. I'm going to read some of these. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Desperately sick? Do you think of your heart like that? Does anyone think of their heart like that? If not, you won't ever have to kneel to healing and you won't ever really need a healer because you can just make some self-improvements. But when God speaks of our heart and is when his word speaks of our heart, it says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, which means it needs to be healed. What does David cry out in Psalm 41:4? He says this, as for me, I said, O oh Lord, be gracious to me, heal me for I've sinned against you. You see, when we think of healing, we're oftentimes thinking of something physical, like an ailment or something we have. When these verses that we're looking at are talking about healing, the ultimate healing we need is something on the inside, which is the disease of sin that needs to be healed. Look at what he says in Psalm 2, which is actually a whole psalm of David's repentance. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. He goes on to say in this psalm that he needs healing because he is sinned. And so the first thing we need to do is kneel to the fact that we need help and we need healing. And the healing that we need is something that is on the inside of us. So when we look at passages like this, that he was despised and rejected, he had sorrows and grief, that he was going through all this stuff, that he bore our griefs and was stricken and was smitten. And and all of these things, we have to understand that we get to read this in light of the fact that Jesus was actually stepping in to do something for our greatest need. When we think of Jesus being the great physician, do you think of him primarily as healing physical ailments? Because when Jesus arrives on the scene, he says, I didn't come for those who need a doctor. In a sense, he goes, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for those who need help. Do you kneel to the fact that you're, in need of grace, that you're in need of the gospel, that you're in need of Jesus' rescuing. Next thing we need to see is that first we kneel. The second thing that we do is see that he provides the healing that we need. So if our greatest area that we need healing in is our sin, we, we see that Christ and Christ alone provides the healing. Look at verse five. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Why is Isaiah writing as though he's there? Why is Isaiah writing as though he's sitting there at the cross? In fact, Rembrandt, a famous painter, uh, drew a picture and, and, and it, was, it was called the hanging of the cross. You know what's fascinating that Rembrandt did is he drew himself in the picture. Years and years and years and years later, he drew himself in the picture because he understood that it was his sin and his shame and his guilt that was there at the cross that day. Isaiah understands that it is his sin, his shame, and his guilt that is at the cross that day. It's not you language or someone else's, it's, it's our, it's everyone's sin, guilt, and shame is at the cross. This is our problem. So when Isaiah says, but he was pierced for our transgressions, it's like, I, I, Isaiah was like, I was there, we were there because our sin and our shame and our guilt was there. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. How is it that Christ brings peace? As Beck was saying earlier, uh, and, and it, it says in First John, uh, in, 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 in love there is no fear. Perfect love casts out fear. You ever watched a kid do anything, any activity? If the child knows that, that at the end of the activity that there's any sense of disproval connected to what they're doing, there's no peace. There's no enjoyment, and in fact there's no longevity. They will eventually not enjoy what they're doing. But when the child who actually knows that, 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 that their parents are, uh, approve of them and love them, there's a tremendous amount of peace and enjoyment in what they do. There's not fear that I, that, that I have mom or dad's disapproval. Instead, there's enjoyment. What Christ brings is peace through knowing this that he was punished so severely on the cross that we never have to fear those of us that are in Christ, Christ uh, uh, the, the punishment of God coming to us. Period. If we could be punished for our sins, that would make God a liar. Which can't be true, or it would, make Christ worse, ins- uh, it would make Christ's work insufficient, which is ridiculous. We cannot be punished, and there's peace to know that the fullness of God's holy wrath was poured out on Christ, and he was punished for us. You see, the gospel brings healing. As you look at the end of verse 5 Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, or by his stripes, as other translations say, we're healed. We're healed. In other words, the greatest thing that we need healing from, that's what Christ was doing on the cross. He was dealing with our sin nature. He was dealing with what we can't help ourselves with. We look at the Gospels, and I love reading the Gospels. I've spent the majority of this year looking at the Gospels. We like to look at the miracles of Christ. And what we actually see when Christ steps into into creation, we see him actually starting to reverse entropy. What we see is he actually brings order Because actually when God created the world, what he did was he brought order instead of chaos into creation. When Christ steps in as the creator, what is he doing? He's bringing order. When he's out on the ocean and the wind and the seas are roaring and raging, he tells them to stop. And they listen because they know their creator's voice. He's reversing chaos and destruction and disorder. What we also see is we see his other miracles And we see him do physical healings on the outside and we go, whoa, that's amazing that he does these physical healings. In fact, one of my favorite is that he heals the blind man. And the way that he heals him is by spitting into the mud and then taking the mud and putting it over his eyes. The creator takes the very thing that he used to create man with his breath, his words that he spoke and the dust from the ground. And he's showing I'm here as the one who brings new creation and new life. And I'm recreating so I'm using the thing I started with to show that I'm back again, but I'm bringing a new creation. I'm restoring things. The world is moving in this direction unless, the way entropy goes, an outside force interjects itself. And Jesus is saying, I'm the outside force. I'm the only force that has the ability to step in and heal sin. I'm the only force that has the ability to step in and turn things around from moving towards decay. And so he heals the man. And he does all these forms and these acts of healings and, and, and these miracles. And we go, man, they're crazy. They're awesome. But if Jesus never did another miracle besides the greatest miracle that he's done for us, which I think we oftentimes overlook is he gives us a new heart and a new life and a new identity. He redeems us, he purchases us, he makes us flawless and righteous in the sight of God. That's his greatest miracle act for us. And we can often overlook that. He doesn't owe us another single miracle other than that one. He heals us. He heals us from the very thing that has the ability to destroy us, to separate us from eternity with God, but to also impact our relationships with one another. Jesus brings healing. He reverses this world from moving towards decay and he steps inside of us through his spirit and says, no, no, no No longer will you continue to move towards destruction and chaos. Instead, the most powerful being in the universe comes and sets up shop and lives inside of us. And he's like, I'm moving you toward what I've made you. I've made you beautiful, righteous, pure, and holy. And now I'm moving you toward that. I'm bringing about healing in your life day in and day out. In fact, did you know one of the greatest pictures that, that, that we have of this is something that we easily overlook every Christmas? It's the candy cane. The candy cane is this. When it says that by his stripes, we have been healed, this is what it means. The red on the candy cane actually represents the blood of Christ and his stripes. And it's actually by those stripes that he heals us. How does he heal us? He heals us by making us pure. In fact, Christ makes us just as pure as he is. Look at 1 John 3.3. I don't have it. But 1 John 3.3 says this, even as he is pure, so we are pure. In other words, he cleanses every impurity of filth outside of us that we have committed. And he makes us pure. So the white is his purity his cleansing, his healing. The red is the way that he does it, which is his blood. It's in the shape of a shepherd's staff because he's ultimately the good shepherd that comes to care for the sheep. But if you flip it upside down, it's also J because it's pointing to Jesus. In fact, so much in and around our lives and around Christmas and and all that we have in the world, is just pointing to Christ, to what he's done, to the healing that he provides, to the healing that he gives. But some of you need to hear this this morning. Christ doesn't just heal us from the things that we've committed and the sins that we've committed, though he does bring healing. He also heals us from the things that have been committed against us. He washes us us and cleanses and purifies us from the things that we've done that we are ashamed of, but he also cleanses us of those things that have been done to us so those things don't ultimately define who we are. In fact, we see this, and I know some of you have kids in here, so I will try to edit the story as, as best as I can. But this is a true story. One pastor met with a woman and he was teaching her to pray and he was talking to her and he asked if she would pray father instead of a formal prayer of God. She said she couldn't. And so he pressed and said, why is that? And she said, for years and years in my life, my father crawled in bed with me. And she talks about the evil atrocities that happened to her from that moment. And she says, so in my prayer life, I have never been able to say father since. He prayed with her, gave her an encouragement to ask her to pray this. Abba, which means father, I belong to you. And she said she couldn't. She she started to do it. She started to heal. She started to understand the healing that she needed was from only what Christ provided and what he had done, that he had cleansed her, that he had purified uh, purified her. She knew that the healing that she needed was actually to be loved and to be reconciled to her creator who would give her the only love that could provide the healing she needs. That pastor got a letter letter at a later date and, 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 and the letter was signed and ended with this. Thank you for what you've said to me. And she signed it, daddy's little girl. What had happened is this person understood the healing that she needed, the healing that only God's love provides, the healing that Christ endured on the cross. When you look to Christ and you understand the shame that he endured, and he did it for the joy set before him, what joy? That we could be reconciled to him? That we could be presented to God as holy, perfect people? That's why he did it. Only Christ is able to do this. Many of us live with the guilt of like, I'm not doing enough. Christ comes in through what he does and he heals that by taking our guilt away. Many of us feel that I am not enough and he comes in and he heals that prison that, that, that we live in. But only Christ does this. And I know this might sound absurd, but for a good majority of my life, I did what many people in culture do today is I tried self-improvement. In fact, what I did is I tried anabolic steroids, okay? They were my, I thought they were amazing. I was, when I was in the 10th grade, I weighed, uh, so I was 16, I weighed 110 pounds. And I remember this because my girlfriend weighed 120, okay? So I thought for sure, I was always just skin and bones. And I thought for sure, I was also a wreck. Internally, I've been told how worthless, stupid, pathetic, everything I've been told my entire life. And I thought, I know how to fix this. Muscles, okay? This is how I can fix it. And when we look at something like that, we go, boy, that's absurd. Let's just jack up the testosterone levels of a really insecure individual. That'll help. We see someone doing something externally to deal with a massive problem on the inside that let me tell you guys, it did not work. And we go, that's absurd. We, we know the story of Lady Macbeth, right? Lady Macbeth in Shakespeare's play, she actually uh, um, comes up with this plan to kill King Duncan. Okay, And her plan is to have her husband do it. <laughs> And so her husband does it, but then she is riddled by the guilt that she feels and she sees blood on her hands at all time. And she goes around in the house saying like, how much blood, uh, how could it be? There was that much blood in this man's body. And she goes out, damn spots out. And she's like cursing the spots that are on her. She's washing her hands and washing her hands and washing her hands in front of the doctor. What is she doing? Trying to wash away something externally with soap and water that's on the inside. As we look at the absurdity of those things, my story, Lady Macbeth, let me ask this. What are we covering with? What are we masking to deal with the healing that only Christ provides? What are we doing on the outside thinking that it's going to do something on the inside? And how long are we going to continue doing that before we recognize that we need to kneel, that we need the healing that only Christ provides? And we do that by getting real. Just a couple more things I want to end with today of what it looks like to get real. God's part of our um, redemption through healing is this, that uh, tier one, I would say, is that first we understand how massive of, uh, uh, of the healing is that we need, right? Or that I need Christ to heal, to redeem me. And then we understand Christ has done that. He, he, he's paid it all. He's purchased me and whatnot. I would say tier two of of healing is starting to realize this, is that God's love, his ultimate love that provides the healing that we need. Hear me, please. I'm not against, I see counseling. My wife and I do counseling. I'm not against counseling. I'm pro-counseling. But if you think learning attachment patterns or any gram style or all of these things is going to solve your greatest problems, it's not. The first thing that you need is to be reconciled to God's love who loves you infinitely. And then once you have that, you can also start the process of counseling and healing. And here's the reason why. I can go into counseling and, and, and throw a bunch of baloney out. What makes me safe in counseling, what makes me safe in any setting is to know that I'm clothed and covered in Christ's purity. Then I can actually be known. Then I can expose myself. Then I can share things. I'm not going to counseling helpless either. I go to a counseling session with the Holy Spirit who lives inside of me, who's ultimately going to do the work to bring me into glory. The way that we actually grow in tier two of healings, so to speak, and how the gospel gets in the nooks and crannies of our lives is through relationship. The people I've seen grow the most in GCC are the actual people that are committed to knowing one another and being known. That's it. The people that are actually stepping into people's lives, because think about this. C.S. Lewis says, to love is to be vulnerable. In fact, if you never want to have your heart broken again, just don't give it away to anything lock it up in a nice tidy box, keep it safe. And in that box, he says it'll grow cold, it'll grow dark, and it'll grow calloused, but you'll never have to be broken. He says to love is vulnerable. You see, once I know that God says he stays, he remains. If he was ever going to leave, Christ would have left when he had nails on his hands and he stayed, he remained. Once we understand that, we can start to extend ourselves and trust to others. And then all of a sudden, we expose ourselves. We get real. Like Paul does, by the way, who, who basically writes, it's almost like a diary setting. He's like, I do the things I don't want to do. I, 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 I do the things I hate. I know what I'm supposed to do and I don't do this. Paul is being real. Jesus, in the darkest hour, in a sense, of his life before he goes to the cross in Gethsemane, says, Man, pray with me, please. My soul is in anguish. Pray with me. The reason why we can get real with people, the reason why we can extend some trust to people is because we ultimately know that God remains. But also what becomes beautiful is this, is when someone tells me of their brokenness or I share my brokenness with others and they stay, we go, whoa, you're not leaving, you're not rejecting me, you're not walking out. And then trust grows and it develops and we start to heal. And God works through the context and relationships of community to bring about this healing. But it comes through us getting real, being known. Yeah, I mean, get real on a deep level. Sometimes people's personalities, we don't even know what to do with. You can be like, hey, your personality makes me go like this or goes like this something. Like we can share all these different things in the context of a community where we all have the greatest thing in common that we've had to kneel to the fact that we can't help ourselves where Christ has healed us and where we can get real about where we're at. Today, you can leave in one of two places you can leave knowing that your greatest healing that you've needed over over sin, Christ provides. And that he is going to continue to work out healing and, and, and instead your life doesn't end by ultimate decay. Your life ends by being in the presence of God. In fact, the greatest turning over of things was the resurrection of Christ, where he showed, I don't submit to death, death submits to me. And you will leave today either recognizing that you have the healing that God has given and that he's going to continue to transform you from one, glory, one degree of glory to the others, his word says. Or you will leave today being defined by the things you have done or haven't done in your life. Those, those are your options. You will either leave today being defined by the healing and the righteousness that Christ has given you. Or you will be defined by the actions of your life. And so you can leave going, yes, I'm defined by what Christ has done and accomplished for me, or I'm defined by my yesterday, by my mess ups, by the failures in my life. Those things define me. I have anxiety. I have so many things. I'm not defined by all of those things. I'm defined as a child of God, an identity of love that cannot be shaken. In the Bible, it says this. You have blind Bartimaeus. You have Simon, son of Joda. You have to hear me today. End with this. If you have been purchased, cleansed, redeemed, and healed, and made new, you have a new identity. You are Abba's child. You are son of Abba. Daughter of Abba. And that will never change. Father, we thank you for our time, for our day, for the healing you provide. That our healing that we ultimately need is not something we can provide or something we can do. It comes by your wounding, by you being wounded, by you being beaten, Jesus, on our behalf. We praise you that you endured what you endured so we could actually be healed in the way that we need healing. Today we celebrate what you have done in and through the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.